Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Luke chapter 16, the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples. He spoke to them in a parable. In this case, it was the parable of the unjust steward. Now, at the end of the parable, he does explain to us what the purpose was for him giving this parable. He said that you cannot serve both God and mammon. And he uses this parable in order to describe a circumstance, to describe a situation so that people could see that on occasion you will have to make a choice. You will be put in a scenario at some point in your life where you will be making a choice between what is the right thing to do and, on the other hand, what would be the more profitable thing to do. What would be more in your interest? Do you want to do that which is just and right, or will you perhaps be a little unjust because you're more concerned about your own personal well-being in the sense of how you are going to get money or how you are going to obtain money, how you're going to be able to get that. You will have to make a choice concerning what is more important to you. That's fundamentally what this parable is about. Now, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, this is Luke chapter 16, verse 1, he said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. That was it. The master made a decision. He heard an accusation, and he told the steward to give an accounting of all that the steward has been doing with the master's property, and that he was no longer going to be a steward. And so he effectively tells him that he's not going to work for him anymore, and he wants closure concerning all of the accounts or all of the agreements that the steward made, just because of an accusation. Now, we don't know if the accusation was true or not. I will assume for just a moment that it was not true, just because if it was true, then when the accounting takes place, then the master would be able to show that the accusation was correct. But in the parable, we know that the master does commend the steward and that he does not hold anything against the steward. We don't know if he allows the steward to continue to work for him or not, but we do know that the master does commend the steward for his efforts. And so it appears that this is a false accusation. And you might wonder, well, if it's a false accusation, then why does the steward have to go through all of this? Well, it turns out that in life, on occasion, we are going to be accused of things. You might very well be accused of something that you didn't do. And there are many people who will hear this accusation and they will expect you to prove that you did not do something that they say that you did. You will have to prove that the accusation is false. This is the attitude that a lot of people have. 
when they hear accusations, and that's just the way things are. And so when this accusation was made, for whatever reason, the master decided to believe the accusation, and he expected the steward to prove otherwise. And so the steward found himself in a circumstance where he's going to have to go through all kinds of effort, all kinds of labor, all kinds of expense, just to show that the accusation is false. This doesn't cost the accuser anything. The accuser just makes the accusation, and now everybody has to do all this work and all this effort just because of the accusation. This happens in real life. I can give you lots of examples that I know of that people have faced, that I have faced, where accusations have been made. And, you know, sometimes people really want to believe some of these things that are said. They might want to believe what is said about the steward just because they don't like the steward. They may not like him just because they don't like him personally, or they don't like him because he's working for the master and he's profitable and he's obtaining benefit. They may not like the fact that he's successful. There are people who genuinely want successful people to fail. They want people of good reputation to be destroyed. There are people who just genuinely enjoy scandals and they enjoy seeing the destruction of other people who they don't like, especially if they can do it without any expense to themselves. And so a person making a false accusation can do so with these things in mind. And many do. They make these accusations just because they want to hurt somebody, just because they want to disrupt things. And there will probably be lots of people around them who will want to join in with them just because they don't like that person either. This is a reality of life, and so it should not be too surprising that the Lord Jesus uses an example like this in order to explain something, because this does happen. It happens a lot. So the steward found himself in this very awkward situation, and he's going to have to do something. And so he thought within himself, he reasoned within himself, and came to a decision about what he would do. Beginning in verse 3, this is Luke chapter 16, verse 3, he says, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. And I'll come back to verse 4 in just a minute. In verse 3, he recognizes that the master has just decided to believe this accusation. He's going to lose his position. He's going to lose his job. He says he's not able to work behind a shovel. He's not able to dig. This could very well be because he's not physically able to do so, at least not enough to be able to compete with those who can. He may be too old. He may have spent a lot of years working with his mind instead of his body, and so he's physically not able to compete with those who can dig. And so that certainly won't be a profitable enterprise for him. He won't be able to do enough work in order to survive, in order to pay for his way of life that he's going to have to have, especially with the changes that he's faced with. He says that he is ashamed to beg. He's not interested in asking people for money without providing something in return. He doesn't want to just ask for money. He wants to work for it. He wants to do things. He wants to be productive. He wants to provide a service for other people for which he can receive compensation. Now, some beggars view their begging as a form of service where they genuinely believe that they are providing the service 
of being able to make you look good, being able to give you someone to give to. And this, of course, gives you an opportunity to say that you give to the poor, that you give to the needy, so they would like to be the needy. And if you fail to do that, then they will, of course, tell you and probably everyone else who will listen that you are a bad person because you did not give to them they who are a needy person. Some beggars are like that. I've I've met people like that. And so he decides that he does not want to engage in anything like that. He genuinely wants to provide real services. He wants to do work. So he resolves in verse four, he resolves what he's going to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He knows that this relationship with the steward is coming to an end. And so he's going to have to have new relationships. He's going to have to establish relationships with other people so that he can have a place to live, so that he can have a place to sleep, at least temporarily until he can restructure and reorganize his life. And so he comes to a conclusion about what he's going to do in order to establish or improve his relationships with other people so that he can rebuild his life now that the stewardship is coming to an end. He makes contact with the people who he can have contact with right away, and that is all of the people who owe his master something. All the people who owe his master something, he was able to contact because he's the one who's the steward. Over those things, he probably made all of the loans. He's the one who is managing all of these agreements, all of these accounts. And so in verse 5 it says, So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he says to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now, when reading verses 6 and 7, it's easy to assume that what he's doing is he is being dishonest, that he is making an agreement with the people who owe his master to rewrite the debts in a way that effectively evaporates the oil and gets rid of the wheat. To go from a 100 measures of oil to 50 measures of oil, what happened to the other 50 measures of oil? I'm sure the master would be asking him about the other 50 measures of oil that was loaned out and that this person owes. If this person rewrites the bill and says that they owe 50 and not 100, well, then the master would be asking, well, then what happened to the other 50? Are you saying that he did pay the other 50 at some point, but we don't have any evidence? We don't have any record of that? That's not what I read here. What I read here is what would be better described as a debt restructuring in order to settle the account and resolve the agreement. In other words, when the person owed 100 measures of oil, the steward went to him and said, look, the master is removing me from my position. I'm not going to have this job anymore. He wants me to give an accounting of everything that I have made use of that belongs to him. We made an agreement with this oil. I gave you a certain amount of oil, and you agreed to give 100 measures of oil back to me. 
In other words, what the person originally had would be less than a hundred measures of oil. He owes a hundred measures of oil in the sense of the premium or the interest. What would be given in return for the original amount that was given to him? And so when he says, don't give me the hundred that you owe me right now. I know that you owe it, and I understand that we're paying this in installments, or you're going to pay this to me after a period of time. Instead, let's resolve the bill. Let's resolve the agreement right now. Just give me 50, and we'll call it quits. We'll call it over. We'll say that the agreement has been fulfilled. How much oil did the person get to begin with? Well, whatever it was, it would have to be less than 50. Maybe it was 45 measures of oil. Maybe it was 50 measures of oil and they're breaking even. Maybe it was 30. Whatever it was, it would be less than or equal to the amount that was originally given to the person. Otherwise, the master is not going to commend this steward with the complete accounting that he presents. The same thing with the wheat. The person owed the master 100 measures of wheat, and the steward says, look, just give me 80. We'll rewrite the bill and say that it's 80. You give me the 80, and we'll say that the agreement has been fulfilled. I'll bring the 80 to the master, and he will say that this is acceptable. And so when the people wrote out or rewrote 50 or 80, what that would effectively be is a type of receipt that the steward would take to some warehouse or some business somewhere and say, this is my claim check for 50 measures of oil that the owner of this business enterprise has agreed I can come and collect. He would go and collect the 50 measures of oil and bring it to the master. The same thing with the wheat. Perhaps the guy was making matzahs. He was making unleavened bread. He was making leavened bread. Whatever he was making with the wheat in this business enterprise that he would borrow many measures of wheat for the purpose of producing something else and obtaining a profit from his labor and from his efforts and from finding people who would buy the breads. He goes to this business with his claim check and says, I'm here to collect 80 measures of wheat. The person who owns this enterprise has agreed to give me 80 instead of 100. He could give me 100 later, but he's going to give me 80 now in order to restructure and settle the debt, settle the agreement. And so everything has been fulfilled. And then the steward would then deliver the 80 measures of wheat to the master. Under these circumstances, verse 8 can be acceptable in the sense that the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. He had dealt shrewdly in the sense that he was wise and he was practical and he resolved the agreements, he resolved the debts, he brought in what the master either gave originally if the exchange was equal or he brought in that amount and a little bit more. It would not be as much as the steward would have been able to collect if the master did not disrupt the agreements. The master disrupted the agreements by asking the steward to give an accounting and to present 
evidence and to show that he was not stealing from the master, that he wasn't being unjust or that he was wasting his goods. Don't show me that you're wasting my goods. Show me the goods. So he would show him the goods. And in this way, the master would be able to commend him. After commending him, the steward would not have to be concerned about having some legal proceedings of some kind occur where the master may bring the steward before a council or before a judge of some kind there in Israel or there in Jerusalem, and then the steward would be indebted to the master. No, there is a settlement. There is a settlement in the sense that the stewardship is settled. The steward is able to give an accounting well enough that the master can see that nothing was wasted. Again, if the master decided to keep the steward on, he would have been able to get the other 50 measures of oil, probably. He would have been able to get the other 20 measures of wheat, most likely. But this was a reasonable agreement in the sense that the steward was able to retrieve the property of the master and the master was satisfied. And that was the parable. But then Jesus begins with an explanation. He then proceeds with an explanation at the end of verse 8 by saying, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. He asserts that there is a difference between the sons of light and the sons of this world, and that there is an expression of shrewdness. Shrewdness in the sense that they are perhaps smarter, They might be a little bit more practical. And the transaction that I just described does illustrate, it does show a measure of practicality in the sense that everyone could win. The master was able to receive his property back and the people who owed the debts, who borrowed the property to begin with, they were able to pay less or give less than what they would have given otherwise. And so what's the problem? It sounds like a perfect win-win. Well, in a sense, it is a win-win. However, when you consider the matter of the agreements, the steward had made an agreement with these other people that he would receive 100 measures of oil and 100 measures of wheat. That was the agreement. And so, in a way, he did shortchange the master, even though the master was satisfied with what he was able to get. And I am, of course, suggesting that what he got was a little bit more, if not the same, as what the master had originally. But in this case, if there was to be a sense of absoluteness, if there was to be a sense of just decisions, if there was to be an exercise of justice and righteousness, then there would have been the delivery of what the original agreement was about. The original agreement was about a 100 measures of each. And so that is the difference, that in the righteous sense, or in the just sense, the steward should have retrieved, should have obtained what was promised in the fullness of what was promised. And that is not what he did. So Jesus can identify this steward and say, okay, well, the steward did make good deals in a sense that everyone was satisfied. But it was not as just, it was not as righteous as it could have been. And so by definition, due to his failure, he is going to be recognized as a son of this world and not a son of light. 
if he was as good as God or as righteous as God, if he was God manifested in the flesh in a sense, then there would have been a complete accounting, a full reconciliation according to the agreements that had originally been made. There would be no need to alter anything in order to deal with the circumstances at hand. And so what Jesus says is is that this is an example of where a person is able to maybe, you know, get away with something and that he's using his authority. He's not breaking the law. The master gave him the authority to be a steward over his property. He was exercising his authority. He used his authority in order to deliver less than he would have delivered otherwise. There is no appearance that he collected the full hundred measures and then kept 20 measures of wheat and 50 measures of oil for himself. He didn't do that. And so there's no violation of the law, but there is a violation of righteousness. And that's what Jesus communicates in this parable. Then continuing into verse 9, in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, he says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Jesus was not encouraging his disciples to be dishonest or unrighteous, even though they would not be dishonest, they could still be unrighteous. He was not encouraging them to do that. That is not what he is communicating. This, to me, is an expression of sarcasm by using the phrase, everlasting home, that they might receive you into an everlasting home. But this is the everlasting home of the sons of this world, not the sons of the light. And so if you want to be in their home, if you want to be in their eternal state of going to hell, then by all means, do these kinds of things. Make friends with these kinds of people. Do so by unrighteous mammon unrighteous in the sense that there was an agreement and you changed the agreement. You were not as fully faithful as you could have been. You could have maybe collected all of it. That perhaps is a shortcoming. That's what I read here in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. and verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so what he does is he then further describes the situation. And that is that you may not think of this as being such a big deal. You know, he's talking to his disciples. The Pharisees are overhearing this conversation. They overheard this parable and he's speaking to them as well. And they would say this is not such a big deal. People could say this is not so unjust. But Jesus says, you know, if this is a description of a small aspect, just a little bit of unjustness, a little bit of unrighteousness, you know, what I can say is, is that this might be small. But if this is small, then who's going to trust you with the big things, right? Will God speak to you? about the big things? Will he entrust you with bigger things? If he sees that this is your character, that this is your nature, with the things that you do have responsibility with, that you do have authority over, and this is how you handle them, he may not be willing to share bigger things with you. 
He might not be willing to share smaller things with you. He may be done with you. He might decide that at this time you are now considered to be one of them. You can have your everlasting home with them. You are no longer going to be a son of the light, which was an expression that would mean that the Pharisees who were overhearing this parable would know that Jesus was explaining to them that they are no longer considered to be children of God, that they are no longer considered to be his because they were unjust with the little things. Even things like this, that they were a little bit unrighteous, they were not absolutely pure in all of the financial transactions that they were a part of. It was a way of saying that there was no hope for the Pharisees. And it was a way of saying that there was no hope for the disciples. That there would have to be another way that a person would become a son of light. Because by the standards that Jesus was presenting, of course, in accordance with the law, No one will ever be a son of the light without the grace and mercy of God and the forgiveness of God alone, that no one will ever be able to reach the standard of perfection to accomplish that. And then Jesus proceeds and explains a few other things related to what the Lord may do with us next. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net thank you man.